Welcome everyone, I am Andrew Duckworth and I'd like to thank you for joining us for one of our podcasts for the month of June. We hope all of you are keeping safe and well as brighter times do appear to be on the horizon for all of us. We also hope that you've enjoyed our podcast so far this year. Last month we had two excellent editions and the first we were joined by Professor Matt Costa and Professor Xavier Griffin to discuss their paper on the effect of performance-based remuneration and outcomes in the treatment of hip fractures using data from the white hip fracture cohort. And secondly, we had a great discussion with a, a star-ridden lineup of Professor Mike Whitehouse, Mr. Nick Clement, Mr. Alex Little, and Professor Farhan Sadad to discuss Mike's paper on the role of patellar resurfacing and risk of revision surgery using data from national joint registries. As always, we hope you're enjoying the content from the Knowledge Translation team here at the BJJ and that we're achieving our aim to improve the accessibility and visibility of the studies we publish here at the journal. As part of this, throughout this year, we're delivering special edition podcasts with our guests being the incredibly hardworking and invaluable specialty editors here at the Journal. We've already enjoyed the company of Mr. Sam Musedic and Professor Dan Perry as part of this series, and today we're welcomed by another one of our excellent specialty editors. As many of you know, the aim of these is to give our listeners an insight into the vital work they do here at the Journal, what they feel the current research trends are in their area, as well as highlighting some key papers from the past year that we've published that will also be made available temporarily for free uh, following release. So today I have the great pleasure of being joined by our great special editor for shoulder, Professor Duncan Tennant. Welcome, Duncan. Thank you for taking, taking time to join us today. Thanks very much, Andrew. It's, uh, thank you very much for asking me. So Duncan, um, so the last sort of 12 to 14 months have been strange times and difficult times for all of us. And I've just been asking all of you, you know, can you give us a brief overview of your own insights regarding this, both with regards to your clinical practice, uh, but also in your role at, at the journal? As you say, it's been a remarkable year or so. The the cessation of all elective activity during the first lockdown was interestingly coupled with a remarkable decrease in emergency activity as well. So sort of everything stopped. The redeployment of the junior doctors, certainly around us, with the the reallocation of the seniors, meant that I spent the time covering the wards and being an A&E doctor, which is something I haven't done for about 20 years. When we restarted sort of August time, what we saw was an awful lot of neglected trauma. I had quite a number of cases, people who'd had shoulder dislocations had been out for three months. So we spent a lot of time doing some really nasty chronic reconstructions and they don't do brilliantly. Mm. I think with the subsequent lockdowns, we've we've done a bit better and people have carried on with their lives and they've not been frightened. So we've had a a real shift into doing some really old fashioned surgery Mm. that some of my more junior colleagues have just never really come across. I've been really lucky. I work at Swellyock, the, the Southwest London Elective Orthopaedic Centre, which has just been amazing. Mm. And we've been really buffered from this whole national disaster of waiting times. We were up and running in late July at full capacity by early August and ran through till week before Christmas. Wow. Started again in March. And I'm running at full capacity. Although what we are seeing is that we're not getting patients into clinic because we're having to spread them all out. We're doing remote consultations. People aren't going to the GP or they can't get to the GP. Mm-hmm. And actually, I'm in the unusual position where my waiting times are going down. Great. But we are worried because things like rotator cuff tears, they get worse the longer you leave them. They get bigger. And we're starting to pick up more and more big cuff tears, which probably would have been smaller if we got to them a bit earlier. As a speciality editor, it was interesting. In the the early part of the first lockdown, it was a chance to catch my breath and spend a bit more time on these things. 
And I did exactly what everybody else was doing and went, right, I've now got all these papers that need writing, juniors that need chasing, as did the rest of the world. And as I think as Sam and everybody else has alluded to, that the number of submissions we've had has gone through the roof. And the quality of the submissions has been really good as well. Mm. With lots and lots of excellent papers that we've just had to turn away because we've not been able to take them in. Yeah. And I don't see it slowing down at the moment. I think people's productivity seems to have, you know, they've, they've got on the, on the roll and off they've gone. Yeah, no, I agree. I think it's one of these things, isn't it, where I think people have got into a bit of a, a pattern now with this and actually yeah, a, whether they found a, a new love for it or whatever, but we it does seem to be relentless really in terms of the amount of papers that are being sent in. And like you said, the quality seems to be be very high too, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I'm really surprised. I thought it would just be, you know, all that junk that was sitting in the back of the drawer and you think, oh, just get rid of it. No, yeah. um, there's been a bit of that, but it, it's really been good. Absolutely, absolutely. And how do you feel as... as uh, has there been much impact though in terms of you know has there been much sort of covid related research related to shoulder in particular or or you know maybe sh- shoulder elective surgery restarting or anything like that and i know you have an interest in education as well is there anything there you know that you've you've seen or or, or heard of i think well we had the impact on on all of the clinical studies and everything stopping we've not seen anything particularly shoulder related i know we've sort of got all the business with the hip replacements and the preoperative score being worse than death mm. we don't see that quite so much in the shoulder we are seeing bizarrely uh, adhesive capsulitis rates going through the roof we, we don't understand it i'm probably seeing four or five times as many cases as i was a year ago wow. and this is not just me this is across the country so I think there's going to be some COVID work coming out of that because that's got to be the common denominator somehow. Yeah. The teaching side of things has been really tricky. Uh, we see with our trainees in terms of just getting hands on, getting the numbers. With undergraduate teaching, we've had no face-to-face, so they've had no patient contact. The flip side of all of this, though, is, is like doing these sort of things remotely, that we're actually learning new ways of teaching and we're working out what works and we're stumbling our way through it, but there's no doubt there've been some good things. Yeah, uh, we're generating for our undergraduates massive amounts of teaching in small groups online, yeah. and they're really enjoying it. Mm. So things are going to change, but yeah. somehow we've got to get back to that face-to-face. We've got to get the hands-on because it, it's a craft. Yeah. at the end of the day. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I speak to a lot, a lot of my colleagues in the university, and I think they would agree. We have had the amount of, of adverse adversity, obviously positive things come out of it. And one has been, like you say, the online teaching thing, but it's just, we do need to get back to that hands-on. It's just finding that balance between the two, mm-hmm. isn't it? And and what's right for getting the right the right balance to, to give them the best result. But I think it has been the, the, one of the positives maybe to come out of it. If we move away from COVID though, what, what would you say in terms of the shoulder over the past year or two, what, what are the main themes coming through? What, what are people looking at? And what do people want answers to, do you think? The big themes that we have are arthroplasty, the cuff, and instability. So we actually have three different streams running all the time, and they seem to sort of go up and down in their in their preference. There's a lot on arthroplasty at the moment, and I think this is going to continue. the The numbers are going up steadily, and the number of reverse arthroplasty is going through the roof. Now, twice as many reverses as anatomics are being done. And there's a lot of papers being submitted. Interesting, a lot of papers being submitted on the, the short stem and the metaphyseal anatomics, because the data is now starting to come out with sort of 
five, eight, nine year. And each month I get another retrospective review of nine years follow up of a short stem. And I'm sort of looking at it again, yeah, we know they work. We've got to look at the reverses because there's no doubt there's a complication rate. There's going to be a legacy when they start to fail. Mm. The cuff will come to this with the first paper that we've got all sorts of clever ways of fixing them, but we don't really understand the biology. No. We know that it doesn't work and we've got to find a way around it. So that's a, I think that's a, a big theme and we, do, we are getting these papers. Mm. And also work on alternatives, the, the tendon transfers, the superior capsules, and there's papers trickling through on that. Uh, so I think they're the big themes, and instability seems to trickle along underneath as well. Yeah, yeah. Just before we move uh, move on to the papers, just going back to the reverse, like you say, it seems to have just really, over the past five years, the numbers just seem to rise and rise. Mm. Do you think it, it will balance out? Do you think it will continue to rise? Are we, are we going to run into some problems in a couple of years' time? What's your feeling about that? I think it's an interesting one. I think the numbers are going to keep going up. Yeah. Because it is actually a very forgiving operation. You can be an average surgeon and it seems to work. An anatomic is a difficult operation to do. Mm. And the registry data is, by definition, it's going to be skewed, particularly these short stem things. It is very, very easy to revise a metaphyseal total shoulder. Yeah. It, it takes me almost no longer than doing a primary reverse. Yeah. So your, your likelihood of revising it goes up and therefore the data is skewed and it looks like they fail quicker yeah revising a revision is a nightmare mm. and a lot of people will just park it and go look you'll be all right you know as long as it's not falling out of the body you'll be okay so the revision rate stays low so i think we've got to be quite careful looking at the data yeah we don't go oh it obviously works much better we should be all putting reverses in yeah 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 um, there's there isn't the 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 easy bait well easier bailout is there for the reverse no, that's um, the thing. So you park it so it doesn't get revised so the numbers look good yeah absolutely absolutely that's really interesting so that, so that sort of leads on actually really nicely to the, the papers you've you've kindly chosen for us we'll start with the the paper you just sort of alluded to which is the rct and that's that's from the team in canada and they did a prospective randomized control trial of patients undergoing cuff rotator cuff repair arthroscopic cuff repair and they randomized them to receive either a percutaneous bone channeling of the rotator cuff footprint or a sham procedure under ultrasound guidance five to seven days prior to their, their index surgery. And their primary outcome measure was a, a disease-specific quality of life measurement for rotator cuff disease. That was the walk index at, at two years. And I think it's a really interesting paper. And I think probably for our listeners, Duncan, some background to why they sort of looked at this. So there's obviously been some animal studies, isn't there, and, and other, other data about what the potential benefits of this might be. Yeah, we know that rotator cuff repair has a failure rate, mm. and it, it's pretty unacceptably high, really. Mm. But we choose to mostly ignore it. And given that the the implants, the techniques have all pretty good, they're pretty reliable, and we, we now know much more about fatty infiltration and you know tear size and that sort of thing. But we still don't know why a large number of them fail, and it's got to be down to biology. Mm. So. We've been talking about it for probably 20 years with the crimson duvet that they talk about, but we don't really know what it is that makes the the thing heal. Over the last probably 10, 15 years, there have been a great interest in biologics, mm. activated platelets, stem cells, 
And there are a lot of quite poor papers that promote one thing over another. Although interestingly, the number of studies that say that activated platelets don't help cuff repair healing are quite high. And they're expensive. Mm. And the idea that you could do something biological, something autologous, is is quite appealing. Mm. And this group had previously done some work to say that if you drilled these little holes in the greater tuberosity, you got these mesenchymal stem cells, and they seem to peak at about 7 to 14 days. Yeah. And they did some work on a rabbit model that said, actually, you get better healing if you do this. Mm. So the logical progression then is, well, if we do this to people, delay their surgery by about a week or so, you should be getting maximal numbers of these stem cells, hence better healing. And I, I think so. the background is great. Yeah. It's a logical conclusion that you'd want to test. Yeah. And so they went on, and I think they've designed a really elegant study. So it's rare for the shoulder. It's an RCT. They've got a sham procedure in that they put the K-wire in just to drill, and they, they fired the, the driver. They just didn't drill the hole. You know, so as far as the patient's concerned, they really genuinely are blinded. Yeah. And then given the constraints of finding like cuff repairs, they did pretty well. Yeah. The sizing was reasonable. They made sure they were all Gutalier fatty infiltration, two or less. Uh, they had only had two surgeons. They were fellowship trained. They mm. powered it properly. They counted for losses. Even with their losses, they still had the numbers. You know, for me, what wasn't to like about it? Yeah. No, I agree. I think it's a really, like you say, it's so nice to see somebody come up with a concept from the lab, basically, and then they've taken mm. it all that way and say, actually, is this going to work? I think the only only shame to my eye was, like you say, when they, they allocated 47 to the bone channeling and six didn't undergo the procedure because mm. of, I think it was sort of um, logistical issues, which was just a shame to lose those from that arm. But as you say, otherwise, they, they had good follow-up and interesting findings, wasn't it, in terms of they didn't really find any difference even with the ultrasound determined healing rates. Yeah, again, what I liked about it and why I wanted to publish it is was so often we have that positive publication bias. And here is a paper that said we designed this great study based on really good science and it should work. Yeah. But it yeah. didn't. And I think that's really nice and honest. Yeah. And you know, for those who, who may not have had a chance to read the paper yet, basically it showed that their outcome measures, the, the West Ontario score, and their secondary measure was the ACES score, mm. no difference. And they looked at their, another one of their secondary measures was cuff healing. And again, no difference with uh, it was what, about 75, 80% yep. success. Yep. So pretty well what you would expect in a normal population. Very disappointing, yeah. but very, very honest. Yeah. They didn't try to massage the data. I agree. I agree. Just before we move on to the next paper, one thing they do mention in their study, a limitation was they standardised the, the number of bone channels created and they didn't relate it to the, the size of the exposed bone. Do you think there's something in that? Is that maybe, maybe a fair limitation and, and maybe there's something more there? Or Well, it's I thought they wrote a really nice discussion as well. Yeah. They put forward a whole load of hypotheses. Was it that they didn't make enough holes? Yeah. Because they just made four holes in the corners mm. and should they have pepper potted it? And I, I did a cuff repair yesterday and I did exactly that, you know. It was about eight or nine holes. Mm. They also argue that maybe it's it's mesenchymal stem cell senescence, which I think is a 
wonderful phrase slightly depressing when i look at the population that they operated on <laughs> that's me um and, and maybe actually the, these mesen and karma stem cells are not the answer anyway yeah, yeah. they're very honest yeah i was deeply disappointed i thought this is the answer yeah and i i think it's it's a great paper no, I agree. I agree. I like to say I love the the way it flowed and they've done that preliminary work. It's great. So we'll move on to the next paper. That's the sort of big data study. And that was actually a, our podcast discussion for the month of March last year and comes from my good friend Paul Jenkins and the team in Glasgow. And the aim of that study was to examine the recent trends in delivery of arthroscopic subacromial decompression in Scotland and determine if this varied by geographical location. And they used sort of big data from the National and Scottish Mobility Records over a four-year period. And this is a really interesting study, isn't it? Particularly given the recent literature in the that would have been published over that time yeah it, it's basically they looked at 2014 to 2018 and they looked at the the rate of or the numbers of subacromial decompression and ac joint excision which i thought was very important uh, yeah. and the, the combined codes and looked at it not only nationally but then broke it down by the by the regions well, several interesting. The reason I picked this was several interesting points that already there was a trend going down. Yeah, which is what we've seen in unofficial data from England. Mm. That the the paper that all of this is based on that that they referenced quoted numbers that are way higher than any of us actually thought was real. Yeah. And we were already doing less for whatever reason. So I think it was interesting that having some national data that demonstrated that with data that's been validated, I thought the, the important point there was it was 93.8% accuracy in their coding, mm. which normally when I look at these these sort of things, you think, oh, come on, you know. <laughs> but when you've got data like that, you know you've got good stuff coming in. Yeah. And that, you know, less than than 7% is not going to be significant. Yeah. So it was interesting that it went down. And the fact that it dipped quite rapidly in the 17-18 period. Yeah. And I know Paul's talking about it. It is interesting. Is that because of the Seesaw and the FinCat studies? And as he said, potentially people talking about it prior to publication. Yeah. Or is it actually just part of the trend anyway? Yeah. And... I would love to see this paper with then the the 1920 data. Yeah. See if it dips even faster or whether it plateaus off because that was the trend. Yeah. So I, I thought that that was really interesting. I, I can't say necessarily you could say this is causation. Yeah. But it's a strong correlation. Yeah. It's interesting that we talk about how it's not even actually the publication of the trial. Is it is it just that it's in people's minds, it's happening anyway, and this just pushes it that way. I mean, you sort of yeah. bit that with the, the draft study, Matt's study, where actually the change happened even before the trial was was published. They, the, the plates and the wires crossed. And it's it's interesting that is it just because it's been put into the mind of people to think actually, do we need to do this procedure? What is the what is the real indication for it? You know, it's it's interesting. You wonder whether there's a I'm sure there's a name for it, a bias from having been involved in something like Seesaw, because that ran for a long time. Yeah. But already people are starting to think five years in, maybe, you know. Yeah, and so that there's there's a sort of effect there. The other thing I thought was very interesting is the regional variation. Yeah, which is what we see. I've looked at the London data, and we see massive variation in in numbers. You know, with some of their groups being three times the standard deviation. That's a huge difference. Yeah, 
and the fact that in in one of the major regions the numbers dropped by 64 percent yeah just raises that whole question about our practice and who's doing what and mm. do we need to educate people yeah, yeah. And I, I thought it, i brought that out that actually even in a relatively small population like scotland yeah. you're getting these huge variations yeah it is, it is fascinating isn't it and that, that variation in practice and that degree of variation surely isn't 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 right <laughs> for whatever reason right. that may exactly. be it, you know that is just it's so stark and and like you say is it is it an education thing is it a, an indication of the surgery yeah it's really interesting no, i i thought it was really a really great paper and like you say sort of the causation with the trials is difficult but i think that's again a really interesting point that was great so if we move on to the the third and final paper and i think it's nice because we've got had an rct we've had sort of a big data study and this is this is a single center retrospective study and but but a great one and that, that comes from the team in nice and the aim of their study to, was to identify risk factors for recurrent instability of the shoulder and assess their ability to return to sport in patients who had engaging hill sacs lesions treated with arthroscopic band cut repair and hill sacs remplissage. And that was a, a, it's a retrospective study, like I say, of 133 patients from a single center. And I think it's it's a really nice study, isn't it? I know, I know you'd say about, we could talk about levels of evidence and things, but actually it's got some really interesting findings. I think it has. As you say, it, it is a little bit messy. It, it's retrospective. They, they've slightly lumped the patients because they've got less than 10% bone loss yeah. and 10 to 20% bone loss, yeah. which they're, they're quite broad groups. Mm. Uh, and this is also from a group who do an awful lot of, of arthroscopic latage. Mm. And they use this ISIS score. And basically, if you get an ISIS score of over three, pretty well you're going to get a latage. So it's quite mm. a, a selected group. Yeah. What I liked about it was within the introduction, they, they said, well, you know, remplissage looked like a very attractive thing. The results seemed to be good. So we started to stretch our indications, which is what we all do. Mm, yeah. And then to say, well, hang on a minute. We're now doing them more and more. They don't always work. Is there any common theme that we can see? Can we refine our indications? Which is what I quite liked about it. It was looking at it. Mm. I mean, it's interesting. Remplissage has been knocking around now since the late 90s. Eugene Wolf in the States started talking about it and got ignored mm. for probably eight or nine years. And then everybody jumped on the bandwagon because it's relatively easy to do. Yeah. But nobody really knows what the indications are. Yeah. Yeah. And what I thought was nice here was that they've identified two factors really that are going to be a problem. Uh, one is that bone loss. And, this is, and what they've said is in that 10 to 20% group, remplissage and a label repair is not going to be enough which is interesting because actually that very much marries up with the more recent data that says that this magic number of 20 percent bone loss is coming down mm. and the latest papers on the biomechanical side are saying 13 percent yeah so that fits with this population where they're saying actually no this should have a bony operation mm-hmm. and the other one was the youngsters that if you're under 23, we know that our youngsters um, don't do as well with the soft tissue repairs. And this adds to that, to the idea that I'll do a, I'll do an extra bit of soft tissue on it because that will help. They're saying, well, actually, it doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. The paper is a little bit limited mm. in that they only had 10 failures. Yeah. It, it's a little hard to, to make huge assumptions out of 10 failures. 
particularly some of their cases were revisions and I couldn't work out whether it was the revisions that failed or not. Agree, yeah, yeah. So you've got to be careful not to take the paper too far, mm. but it says we need to be nuanced. We need, to, we can't do a one-size-fits-all operation. No, I agree. And, and as I say, it's a, it's a large series, isn't it? And good follow-up. And, and and I think it's interesting, like you say, it's 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 somebody who, well, the situation where the 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 indications have expanded like we all know and then they've tried to refine them down again saying this isn't this isn't for everybody and we need yeah. to figure out we need to figure out why no i think it's, I think it's a, a really nice like you say it's it has limitations but a really nice paper so if we just move on finally duncan just to finish us off you know what do you what do you see for the future really in terms of research in the area what what, what are the next big questions that that need to be uh, to be asked and i suppose what are, what are the challenges ahead as I was saying earlier, we've got these three broad areas that are the majority of our work. The arthroplasty, we're refining the, the instrumentation, we're refining the, the implants. Mm. We're getting short stem reverses. We're, we're doing smaller operations. We're doing them a little earlier. Mm. We're bringing the age of the, the reverses down. And we need to be looking at that registry data and having people follow things up to see where it's going. The other part of it is that there are two broad philosophies in reverse. The, the Grimaud style where it's medialized and inferialized and the, the Frankel model where it's lateralized. They're very different concepts. And you see you've got these two competing devices. Mm. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see whether we keep both or whether we start to, to sort of bring it all into one implant that's going to work. So I think we're going to see a lot more data coming out on on implants again because it's easier to do that stuff like it is with the hip and the knee. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we're going to see a lot more work on biologics around the shoulder. You know, we are really dependent on that to get our cuffs to work. What can we do to make our rotator cuff repairs work? Mm -hmm. How can we push the envelope? Because we know we, we hit seventy five and we're all going okay, that's it. We don't think we should operate. You know, we should we repair your cuff? But then what do you do? Yeah. So I think we're, we're pushing that. And I think we're beginning to get a lot more nuanced in our management of instability. Mm -hmm. It was all soft tissue. And then very much the French-driven thing, it's all arthroscopic latigé. Mm -hmm. And we're starting to say, well, actually, there's somewhere in the middle. Yeah. And do we need to be putting small pieces of bone for smaller defects? And can we do it we're just being a lot more subtle in our surgery? Yeah. So I think those are where I see things going. Yeah. Over the next few years. That's re that's really interesting because that's a, a nice a nice way to finish on the but I think that's all we have time for but that was really excellent I really enjoyed that and it's a really nice overview of the the shoulder specialty area here at the journal and and the literature in general and uh, uh, that was really informative and great to talk to you. Thanks for joining us Duncan. Well thank you very much I really enjoyed it. Uh, and to our listeners, we do hope you've enjoyed joining us today. Do look out for the papers we've we've talked about here today and feel free to tweet or post about anything we have discussed here. Take care, everyone.